0: Wherever he goes this winter, I will follow him. I will share the fear and the exultation and the boredom of the hunting life. I will follow him till my predatory human shape no longer darkens in terror, the shaking kaleidoscope of color that stains the deep fovea of his brilliant eye. My pagan head shall sink into the winter land and there be purified. So writes John Baker in his 1967 masterpiece, The Peregrine. Here we pay homage to this fierce, enigmatic, and alluring predator from on high. Falco Peregrinus. This is the Single Acorn Podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: If you're anything like me, a pigeon, you're tired of seeing shelves lined with just pig produce and foods made with only the freshest ingredients. That's why I started Days Olds Foods, a food service company that caters to your needs while tackling one of the biggest problems of our times, eliminating food waste. Days Olds Foods stocks our pantries with the things you want, Stale breadcrumbs, a smattering of lettuce shreds, leftover french fries from a man. It's an easy decision for any pigeon. Fly your fanny over to Days Old Foods for when the freshest of foods just won't do.
0: Well, hey there, fellow naturalists. I am Professor Iwiki. I'm a naturalist and educator with Crow's Path, and I am here today with Glenn Etter, who is the King's Royal Falconer.
1: That's right. Welcome, Glenn. Uh, Thank you. It's, you know, unusual for me not to be around nobility, but um, I'll do my best today Yeah, to deal with the commoner.
0: <laughs> thanks for, <laughs> thanks for deigning to, uh, yeah, chum it up with it. the, yeah, the and chumming,
1: slumming and chumming.
0: Yeah, so what's it like being a King's Royal Falconer? I see you're wearing your, your full garb and everything today.
1: Yeah, I'm covered, usually covered in three or four layers of leather, so the summer can be a little hot, but, you know, I have a sort of invincible feeling about myself, so. You know, I'll go into bars and just start insulting people and it'll beat me in the leather. That's really why I'm into it. It's the (laughs) outfit.
0: But you do actually work with falcons, right?
1: Falcons, well, as a royal royal falconer, you know, we we try to get larger birds. So golden eagles usually on horseback tend to do. Sometimes he wants even larger birds. So I was working with an ostrich for a while, but it wasn't doing a very good job (laughs) of staying on my arm. (laughs) (laughs) It also didn't seem to hunt that well.
0: Yeah, what do
1: ostriches hunt? Mostly tubers. tubers. I'm not sure, actually. You just kind of Our, roll uh, we yams had a tuber-eating ostrich. Yeah, we would uh, we trained it with a lure, a yam lure, and then it would go after wild yams. Yeah, <laughs> there was a period where I had to ride on the ostrich, which was on top of the horse. It was quite quite good for my um, Facebook feed. I got a lot of likes. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Yeah, royal. You know, hanging out with royalty, getting more followers. And then we went back to Golden Eagle. So it's a time when the king kind of got, a, you know, he has a bit of an anti-commoner streak. So we had to start hunting. You know, he wanted me to hunt, you know, his political opponents with the oh. Golden Eagle. And I, I didn't feel comfortable with that. Yeah, so he so I mean, got out? Yeah, I dissuaded him. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're still in yeah. the biz. Still in the biz. Mostly just hunting, yeah, sweet, cute little animals, killing them with my birds and bringing them to the king and queen.
0: That's great. Wow. He's also it's good work, huh?
1: good work if you find it like i said the outfits are great benefits are pretty good um you're welcome to come in as an apprentice it's a 10-year program oh yeah uh,
0: that's why i was having you on the show i was hoping to sort of ingratiate myself to (laughs) You're
1: in. (laughs) i've been looking for an apprentice i've always wanted one
0: perfect Uh, Well, I'm hoping we can draw on your expertise as a uh, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) pseudo-falconer when we talk about peregrines today. But I I did, my friend Riley pointed me to this journal article that I thought was quite fascinating. So before we talk about peregrine falcons, I just wanted to, I got a little news quiz for you. Uh, So can you name two species that drink the milk of other species?
1: drink the milk of other species yeah i am definitely going to go with humans on this because i myself enjoy a good cool glass of milk chocolate milk especially
0: yeah so you got one why don't we go with wild species so we won't vampires humans
1: it seems like it would have to be an intelligent sort of animal to come up with a strategy or maybe a very non-intelligent animal just doesn't recognize its own mother so I'm gonna go with those two ends of the spectrum. <laughs> Perfect. I'm gonna go with a possum that just happens to wander off off and like nursing a raccoon or something. And then um a chimpanzee. I'm guessing they like in an emergency that they, they scuttle off and like nurse on a hyena. Nice. <laughs> and I'm not I'm not proud of this guess. About hundred percent sure it's wrong. What are they? It's a fascinating idea.
0: Well, yeah, so humans was right. Chimps wrong, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> oh well.
0: Yeah. And then possums, definitely wrong. So possums, I, I think marsupials might be hard for... Well, maybe. I mean, a marsupial could wander into a pouch of another marsupial and just kind of get lost amongst the... Or get the, flung,
1: say in a kangaroo's case. Yeah, that's you know, true. In a wayward jump, and it yeah. happens. Be so it,
0: it might not be surprising to you. So cats, right? So there's sort of, you know, you have maybe in the back of your mind an image of a cat licking out of a nice a glass fancy bowl. But feral cats... Have been observed stealing milk from elephant seals. What? Yeah.
1: For the cute cat video, YouTube world, that is a goldmine.
0: I actually didn't see that, but it. So there are these big harems of elephant seals, and they'll have this breeding colony area, and so there are a bunch of them. And it's not just these feral cat populations, but I guess also sheathbills, which are a type of bird, and western gulls have also been recorded stealing milk directly from the teats of these
1: elephant seals it's like a convenience store yeah it's pretty wild stuff so all of those species would have counted all of those species yeah but it was really about the elephant seals more than the cats in a way yeah exactly yeah i I think i've seen you know i think i have seen a cute cat you know youtube video of a little kitten nursing with i don't know a dog or something
0: oh yeah i guess i probably should have qualified it by in the wild
1: okay but the feral option yeah and there's also pigeon milk right it's not real milk, but I just wanted to introduce pigeons because maybe they'll play a role today in our peregrine discussion.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so this is the second profile we profiled. American crows in our last episode, and we're profiling a bunch of different species that are in some way tied intimately to cities. And so, yeah, for this week, we are going to be talking about peregrine falcons. And I just want to share a couple of stories about peregrine falcons. The first story was my first encounter that I really vividly remember with Peregrine Falcons, which was probably back in 2006. I was a little late to get on the birding bandwagon. <laughs> um, but I was camped out in the Ruby Mountains in Nevada, which are, they go up to about, I think, 11 plus thousand feet. Are so there the...
1: rubies in them? Are they ruby colored? No, or interesting. Are the people named Ruby that live there?
0: Uh, no, that there are these little embedded grains of... Uh, no, what's the mineral that looks salt? Garnets. Garnets. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, that look ruby esque and they're not actually ruby. So it's, it's sort of misnamed. But anyways, the, these like really, really steep cliffs up uh, near the top of the, you drive up this uh, valley called the Lamoille Valley. And which is different from the who you have here in <laughs> yeah. Vermont. And uh, you get up and you get up above tree line and there are these really dramatic cliffs up there. And it's just this incredible landscape. And I had sort of bushwhacked in and I was camped out with a friend in the back country. And I think we were there for maybe 10 days or so. And at some point I left our little base camp and hiked up to the top of one of these cliffs. And I was just sitting out, looking out over this desert landscape it's just this really beautiful, you know, experience where the wind was blasting up towards the cliffs and then coming straight up and sort of washing over. And I was sitting there looking down over the valley below. All of a sudden, this paragon came swooping up and glided just in front of me. It was just hovering there. Wow, like hovering in front
1: Yeah, like. Yeah. Did you make eye wind. contact? Did you lock eyes?
0: No. So I was just above it. So it actually okay. didn't see me. It seemed like it was just riding the wind and hovering sort of in place. And you could just see its head just sort of systematically scanning around. And then at some point it just, it peeled off and flew away from me. I'm not sure exactly what it had observed in the environment to draw it away, but it was just this really beautiful moment of just getting to watch this super streamlined animal just kind of, yeah, hovering right in front of me.
1: still. Wow. Yeah. And
0: then the other experience I wanted to share is uh, maybe a more urban experience. So yeah, we live here in Burlington, Vermont. This was uh, March uh, quite a few years ago, maybe like 2015, 14, something like that. And uh, there's this place called Rock Point in Burlington. And again, there's sort of these sheer cliffs that uh, are great breeding habitat for peregrine falcons. I had hiked out with a couple of friends. We were looking out over the lake, and the lake at this point, this is March, and the bay just to the north of Rock Point had totally frozen over, and there's this long seam that's in the ice that stretches between the two points, Apple Tree Point and Rock Point. It's ice on both sides, but there's a seam between the ice where the sheets of ice kind of shift and move around and create this weak zone. Probably about halfway between the two points, there's this small little opening in the ice, you know, when ice covers lakes, it traps oxygen from getting into the water. And so if you have an opening in the water, you have a place where oxygen interfaces uh, with, the, or in the atmosphere the with the water. Right. And so they tend to be slightly more oxygenated.
1: And so do fish, more fish hang out there? Yeah, more fish hang out there. So that's why ice fishing maybe works, partly. You make a hole, and then there's a little more oxygen there. And then fish gather, and then you catch them. Uh, Suckers! I don't know if that works. Yeah, maybe. That way. I'm not sure. Say it does. Ice fishing. Come to Vermont. It's great yeah. past <laughs> time. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. So we, we were we were sitting out on the edge of the the cliffs and looking out, and uh, we saw this peregrine fly out towards the seam in this ice, and then it flew to this little place where there was this opening, and then it landed, and it was just standing there. We were pretty far, so we couldn't really see, but it seemed like it was just standing intently staring at the little hole. And then probably about 10, 15 minutes later, the peregrine, another peregrine flew out, landed, and the first peregrine flew back to the cliffs. And they did this for probably about an shifts. hour.
1: They were taking shifts. They were
0: taking shifts. It seemed like they were maybe hunting fish that were coming up, just like waiting to stab their feet into the water to grab one. And then eventually, the one of the peregrines flew out, and then it mounted the other female, and they mated it wasn't anything dramatic just lasted for a few seconds and then after that they both flew off and it was so awesome because that same summer we were able to watch the peregrines so they nested on the cliffs right below where nice, we so were was sitting. it the
1: same tooth you can, can assume it was the same
0: tooth yeah. yeah we watched them mate, and then we got to watch them nest and then they successfully fledged three young we were doing summer camps that year for crow's path and we spent a bunch of time down on the water. And when we would be down there, the ducks would always come up. And at the start of the summer, there were maybe 30 or so ducks. <laughs> and they would but a always little less hang by out. the end. Yeah, they would always hang out right next to the shore. And they were like hugging the shore, even if we were playing there. And it was because the peregrines would hunt them and they were learning how to hunt. The young were learning how to hunt using these peregrine or the mallards. And so it went from, you know, 30 to 28 to 25, 24 and they slowly would whittle the population down. And so during lunchtime, we would hang out on the water and we'd get to watch the peregrines make these, they're also called duck hawks, but they would swoop down and make these lunges at the the wow. mallards. And yeah, it Wildlife was Wildlife TV. It was amazing. So we get to watch them and they successfully fledged these three young peregrines. Wow.
1: And were they were the ducks safer near the shore somehow? Is that a safer place for them? Because I think
0: they were congregating the right next to us. Oh, just so, you
1: were you were the cover.
0: Yeah, it seemed like they yeah were hoping that we would provide some sort of yeah you just buffer. To cheer on the
1: Falcons. Little did they know. Yeah, you're rooting for the other team. Yeah. Wow, that's an amazing story. I wonder maybe that ice hole was just sort of a hookup spot. You know, it's like a scenic, romantic.
0: Yeah, you know. it was the water the watering hole? Yeah, yeah, the
1: watering hole, Peregrine, Tinder. Meet me at the hole. It's an easy thing to describe. Yeah. Just a theory. I'm not saying that's based in science.
0: That sounds good. Have you ever had, have you had any experiences with wild peregrines?
1: I have. I've had a few and and with tame ones. In fact, I think my first early experiences. I worked at an outdoor school where they um, kept some, rehab, rehabilitated some raptors and some of the raptors, you know, were uh, permanently injured. Mm. So kids would come and often we would put one of the peregrines out on a little stump and kids would gather around and we would talk about the peregrine a little bit. You know, we could hold it on our arms like a real falconer, put it down. And then um, we would feed it often for the kids. And it was kind of funny to watch their expressions. Cause a lot of them were, um, you know, it's a very beautiful bird. And the kids would be drawing it. And then then we would feed it. And, you know, the paragons would be just ripping apart whatever. It was, it was <laughs> like, uh, a rat. just like blood, kind of guts everywhere. And some of the kids would be like horrified. And some of the kids were like, ah, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. Some of them would yeah. change their drawing and just put like all this red, you know, like blood everywhere. <laughs> So, you know, I got to see the sort of majesty and the, the cruelty of the predator-prey relationship up close, as did many kids. We also, with my son Finn, when he was four or five, we would take a canoe out by a different set of cliffs in, in Vermont and Burlington near Red Rocks Park, and we had yeah, a pair of peregrines up there would squawk at us regularly. Hmm. We, would, we called it talking to the peregrines, but really it was probably just disturbing them and having them yell. They were, they were quite loud from their nesting area. Oh, definitely. We tried yeah. not to get too close, of course, for me birders out there listening
0: yeah with one of our summer camps we actually did a summer camp at red rocks and we i wasn't with this group but uh they found a dead peregrine falcon out there which is wow. pretty interesting
1: yeah we've i've seen them attack other birds but never from the the stoop the sort of up high and then craning down just sort of more just flying horizontally near the near the ground i've seen them attack ducks many times and gulls yeah someday because everyone wants to see the world's fastest animal in action right
0: uh, darn right about that Yeah. So uh, we'll get there, but let's start with the taxonomy of these uh, birds because it's pretty interesting. So they are uh, falconiformis, uh, which is the order, and that includes other falcons and kestrels and caracaras. Birds are kind of this interesting thing with taxonomy because uh, rather than using the taxonomic names, it's more, the scientific names, it's more common to use the common names in the scientific community. And part of that is because the Genetic relationships between these different birds has changed pretty significantly with uh, genetic understanding of evolutionary relationships. And so you have something like the falconiformis, these falcon-like birds that look really similar to the Accipitriformes, which are like eagles and hawks and osprey kites vultures but they are taxonomically not really closely related so they're more closely related to parrots than they are to other uh raptors the diurnal raptors
1: can you teach them to talk of course that's my first question should i teach my falcon my royal falcon to talk maybe the stories (laughs) it could tell let's be able to talk right it's related to parrots
0: yeah i mean they're not super vocal they do make some vocalizations actually like uh the you know about a mile from my house there's this uh one of the busiest intersections in vermont and there's a gas station there and they play on repeat during the day uh it's like alarm calls from kestrels and peregrines so it's just like this <laughs> kind of noise to scare away the pigeons and to starlings. The pigeons. yeah
1: <laughs> that's good i was about to say our listeners would probably want to hear you do a peregrine vocalization then you pulled it out i don't there know if that's a kest- kestrel or thank you yeah Ka, ka, ka.
0: yeah uh so then for family they're in Falconidae with the other uh falcons and then the genus falco yeah so they're among the largest the jeer falcon is the largest falcon um but they're definitely pretty large birds and then their species name is uh peregrinus and they get the name peregrinus it's latin for wandering and you know i Heard other people say that they're called the peregrine falcon because they're found all over. So it's, you know, totally They're worldwide, right? Yeah. Yeah. I found one article that was talking about the etymology of peregrine falcon. And one of the suggestions was not that, because this would have been named far before people had any sense of the geographic distribution of the species. Right. And so one of the ideas is actually that, you know, falconry is, peregrine falcons are important to falconry, and the peregrines were, uh, young peregrines were captured during migration, and so it was likely that the Europeans that named this species peregrine falcon were tuned in with the fact that these birds would have disappeared and that you would have had to catch them at certain times of year. Certain times
1: of the year. Not in the nest, I think I read. Well, they they rarely caught them in the nest, or? Less often, or something.
0: Yeah, so they tend to nest in cliffs, cliffs. or on cliffs, <laughs> and so it would be High a little stakes. bit more difficult, I guess, to capture them out of the nest. Although some birds would have been stolen out of the nest.
1: By the way, etymology moment. Since that's part of my role, do you know where the word peregrinate or that word comes from in English? I do. Wonder. Ah, yeah. Well, nice. Why don't you go for it? Well, I think it comes from through through the field in Latin. Yeah, where it's through an ager so, apparently. Peregrines go through fields.
0: Yeah, so uh, the R's in a lot of words are transposed with L's. And so pelgrin or pelgrim. Pelgrim. I also heard it was related to
1: pelgrim. Yeah, related to pelgrim. Those words were related.
0: Yeah. I love etymology. So I've got a a quiz question for you about your reign, about the range of peregrines. So where would you be more likely to find a peregrine falcon? Would you be more likely to find them on a volcanic island in the Aleutian Islands up in Alaska in winter, on the cliff edges of a hobbit shire in New Zealand overlooking (laughs) the ocean, or at medieval times in New Jersey?
1: Medieval New Jersey. Wow. Phrases I haven't heard. I mean, was it called, New Jersey, in medieval times? It's before they were over there. I'm just going to say it's so random that you came up with medieval New Jersey, because I was going for the hobbit. You know, it seems like a lot of prey in New Zealand out over the ocean potentially all those new zealand ducks but i'm gonna go with medieval new jersey because why else would you put it in there <laughs> My final gosh. answer
0: uh and you of all people should know this glenn as the royal falconer <laughs>
1: well I, I know it i just don't want to pre- am pretending like i don't know it so i viewers I can identify with me yeah Listeners. yeah uh
0: yeah they have a falconry act at medieval times I think there was a time in my life where I desperately wanted to go to medieval times, but I have never... I don't even know about
1: medieval times. That's a, it's like a giant sort of medieval fair in New Jersey. It's famous, apparently.
0: It is. It is an absurd exhibition that they put on at these totally cheesy, tacky restaurants where you can eat. can, yeah, like a king or queen, you know, gorge yourself on chicken wings and watch... (laughs) <laughs> Knights joust and yeah, I guess it, it it started in Spain. Some wealthy person had this giant mansion and started holding these Renaissance fair type gatherings, but medieval the themed. Yeah. do they have
1: like serfs, you know, scrounging around for for your leftovers? So you feel, <laughs> yeah, you, feel more so you get the full experience. Yeah, <laughs> but they have a, they have a falconer act as it.
0: part of the exhibition. Yeah. Um, and I, you actually, you had a 66.6 repeating chance of getting it right because uh, they're actually also found on, well, you want to guess, guess which one they're not found on, on the Aleutian Islands or uh, in New Zealand?
1: Maybe they're not found in New Zealand. I mean, it would seem like, they I mean, winter, is there a lot of prey around? It's kind of dark up in the Aleutians in winter. So I'm going to say they're not there in winter.
0: Yeah. So I mentioned that, you know, they're migratory. And they are migratory in certain parts of their range, but in other parts they will stay year round. And actually, on the I- Aleutian Islands, even though it is so cold and inland places, the peregrines are migratory. But on the Aleutian Islands, they'll stay year round because there's
1: they are there in the dark, without, like and um, They probably have like one hour of hunting time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Make the most of it. Yeah, but why not New Zealand? Are they banned there? Like, suit so, nuclear power?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting because they are found all over, but there's there are no sightings of peregrines. Maybe this has changed recently, but there are no sightings of peregrines in New Zealand. And there is a New Zealand falcon, which competes for or has a similar niche. And so it's likely that the uh, peregrine falcons, you know, just can't compete with the more specialized
1: native species there. Uh, it's only a matter of time before one of those medieval spots opens up in New Zealand. Yeah, Malcolm exactly. Escapes. Yeah, and another invasive species, but they're not really. It wouldn't really be an invasive species, would they? If they're worldwide. I guess they would be.
0: Yeah, you could you could still be invasive invas- ev- if you're found universally,
1: but not in one
0: place. But not in one place, and then find your way there. Yeah, Um, yeah. So they are totally cosmopolitan and found all over the place. And one of the interesting things that I thought is there are about nineteen different subspecies that are recognized. And so even though there is some migration of populations, it tends to be very repeated. And so these distinct
1: subpopulations.
0: Yeah, a bird the they have a lot of fidelity to their breeding grounds. And so if you are breeding up in Canada and you migrate down to Argentina for some of these populations of peregrines, you're always going to be returning back to the same part of Canada to nest likely in the same scrape. So the ne- they don't build nests, they just nest on usually sounds on like, bare rock.
1: Yeah, sounds like my apartment a little bit. I call yeah, it's great. It's, yeah your apartment sound the decorating Airbus. bills <laughs> yeah you know, literally, literally air quotes yeah or plain air you know i read that um that the peregrines are the most widely distributed land bird land-based bird in the world except for rock pigeons because yeah. of the people which is their kind of one of their major prey i guess species so. yeah
0: which is yeah in part why they're able to be found all in over cities. the place and in particular in cities.
1: So would there are there peregrines in cities that would migrate away and then come back to the same scrape on a building, the same Yeah, uh, well same so ledge? with with migration there are two
0: ends of the spectrum for what cues you're taking to migrate. So one are these calendar migration species and they migrate basically the same exact time every single year regardless of environmental conditions. And so they're largely syncing their migrations up with whatever is the day length. And then there are the weather migrators that are waiting until conditions get so bad in their breeding grounds that they have to leave for suitable habitat. So think about... And that
1: could depend on the year, basically.
0: Yeah, exactly. So uh, we have great blue herons here in Vermont, and I'm always surprised when I see them in the winter, but they are hunting in open water. So as long as there's open water here, they can stick around and still have access to their hunting grounds. But as soon as stuff starts to freeze up to the point where they can no longer successfully forage, then they have to leave. So by the way, I
1: saw, can I tell a quick great blue heron story? Yeah, sure. I've never, because you hardly ever see animals do pratfalls, but there was a, uh, I was in in the Boston area and we were at this frozen pond, but it had another one of these holes in the ice. And it was a great blue heron just waiting at the hole. For a fish to appear and then suddenly it saw something so it struck but as it struck its legs kind of flew out from underneath it <laughs> and it just fully did a belly flop on the ice <laughs> One of uh, my greatest pictures ever. Yeah. That's amazing. So I'm guessing it, like, after that, it probably just migrated. It's like, I'm done. This is ridiculous.
0: Yeah. I, nothing brings me more joy than watching animals, wild animals that are supposed to be, you know, perfectly adapted so to their an environment, animal. tripping yeah. or falling. Yeah.
1: It makes me feel better about myself.
0: I hope that doesn't make me a wildlife bully. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if you're pushing them down, I would say yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a cave here in Burlington, the Donahue Sea Caves, and it's open because you know caves are much much warmer in the winter than the surrounding temp- uh, temperature usually, and the cave opens up to this lake, and because the cave is so much warmer, it keeps this little area of ice from forming at the entrance to the cave, and so it's open water right there, and fish tend to congregate right there, and last winter. I went down to the sea caves and there were great blue heron tracks all over. I didn't actually see the great blue heron, but they must have been, you know, walking up on the ice and hunting for little fish in there. It's really cool to see. Yeah. Inside the cave, there are hundreds of fish uh, often that are congregating there for oxygen and warmth. That sounds like another
1: good ice fishing spot.
0: Yeah. Although they're all, you know, super, super small. (laughs) It's all the tiniest little
1: fish. Still cute. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so um, yeah, let's talk about the general ecology of peregrines. Yeah, we could, I guess, start with uh, courtship, and so courtship is—they're not songbirds, so they're not singing or uh, defending their territory from other. Birds, you know, by marking out their sound or marking out their territory using song, but they are extremely aggressive around a nesting site and defending their territory that way. But for courtship, it's mostly just the males uh, making different vocalizations and also doing flight displays. I've seen those, I've never seen the other behavior that's sometimes associated with courtship which is the males feeding the females and yeah. they'll do this mid-flight and so the male will fly with a food offering and the female will sort of barrel roll upside down and take the food directly from
1: uh, that the is male. badass that would be like next level for our blue angel you know um jet fighter displays <laughs> handing off snickers bars yeah transfer some food feeding tube some kind of thing
0: yeah yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, they're such incredible aerial acrobats. Aerial acrobats. Yeah.
1: What? Uh. So, what is the typical flight display if they're not feeding, doing the barrel roll? Feeding? Are they like doing loops? Are they doing their their stoopy dives? Are they just kind of whatever tricks they know? Is it is it highly variable, or is there sort of a standard thing they do?
0: I don't know how much variability there. I mean, there's yeah. I would say that there's not like a patterned flight display that they're doing, but it is a series of like acrobatic rolls and stuff like that. Other hawks will fly, and crows will do the same thing. They'll fly with their legs down, and I'm not sure if peregrines will do that. But that's another form of aerial display. Shows that you're stronger. Yeah.
1: Fly with my landing gear down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Check out these legs. Yeah. And the females are the females are bigger than the males, right? And presumably, maybe stronger, better flyers. I don't know. Yeah,
0: this is true for most. I guess for all the raptors, the females are bigger than the males, and yeah, considerably bigger.
1: Do they know why? Do they have theory? I'm sure they have theories. Maybe that's off topic.
0: No, it's everything's on topic. Yeah, so so it's called reverse sexual dimorphism, which is kind of dumb. That's uh, sexist. Come yeah, on. it's a little bit. Well, you imagine a bunch of male uh, ecologists <laughs> in the you know mid 50s oh, studying this. Really and so exactly the
1: natural orders i've been upturned (laughs) yeah
0: so reverse sexual dimorphism is where the females are larger than the males and most species where there's sexual dimorphism the males are larger and that has to do with combat for access to reproduction um where the males are like elephant
1: seals they're big, right? Males. Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, they're significantly larger than but the, the females.
1: Women, the females must be pretty big, be spewing that milk out for all those other species. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so with, uh, with raptors, one idea is that the, the females are the ones that are sitting on the nests and incubating the, uh, the eggs and then mostly rearing the young. The males for peregrines will help, but because they're sitting in, on the nest and spending so much time, they have to defend the nest from predators. So, uh, you know, with nest predators like crows and ravens being a significant threat, also great horned owls being a significant threat. Okay, but my question is,
1: don't all birds, all birds that sit on a nest have to defend from predators? Yeah,
0: exactly. So there would be a pressure for if you're, okay, so if you're the size of a crow, then you can eat things presumably that are smaller than you. And so for warblers and robins and other things that are in that smaller size range, being a larger female isn't gonna matter because you're still gonna you're be still smaller gonna get... than yeah. the crow. But as soon as you get into that crow sized range, then it would be helpful to have the females be larger that are gonna be more susceptible to Are female
1: crows larger than male crows?
0: Uh no. For males and females they're basically the same size for crows.
1: Okay. Seems like it might help them too. I don't know. Just saying. Maybe there's, maybe this is still mysterious. I don't know. I mean, that's the
0: best explanation that I've heard is just nest predators and having to be a deterrent the larger you are right. for a female. Um, they're also they have a bunch of or not a bunch they have uh, nest fidelity which just means that they return to the same nest over and over again. Most birds are well. Most birds are dying in their first year. About two thirds of the birds will Yikes. die within the first year. Um, but then if you make it after that, you have much better chance of surviving up and to returning
1: to your lovely scrape.
0: Yeah, twelve or so years for sort of the upper end of their. No.
1: Now, how long does it take to make a scrape? Because my sense is you, like, scrape a couple times and you're done. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then, so why... I mean, it must be the location, right? Not the actual scraping you've done. Yeah, I think it's the,
0: the location. So, there are two things that you want. Well, there are a few things. So, with a scrape, often there's, like, a ledgy overhang that protects your young from the elements, from rain, and so if you're on a cliff side and there's a little overhang, then that would be a good nest. You also need a little platform because you can't just nest on a cliff if it's just a, you know, a sheer <laughs> be cliff really sticky from ends. top to bottom. Yeah. Uh, and so having a, a good nest site on a cliff, also having to be inaccessible. So they don't have many predators, but they're as adults they don't have any predators really but in the nest they raccoons squirrels snakes possums other things that can discover the nest can eat the eggs or eat eat the nestlings and so in that case you would want something that is as inaccessible as possible if you're a peregrine so there's just a limited number of available Right, there's a number of
1: perfect sites yeah what, what so It's called a scrape. What does a scrape consist of? Do they bring a few twigs and things to keep the eggs from rolling around? Do they sort of scrape up the rock? Yeah. Like the typical peregrine scrape, is there there debris there?
0: There's like debris. There's a, because it was, I heard that there was a scrape in Australia that was, you know, 16,000 years old.
1: Good Lord.
0: Yeah, so, you know, 16,000 years of generations of peregrines had been using the same uh, site. I could only find one from, I think it's a Fish and Wildlife paper, or maybe it's U.S. Forest Service, uh, from a document there that mentions it, and I found no other information there. So either it's personal communication that wasn't cited, or it is uh, just a rumor that is not true. But in that case, they were aging how old the site was not from carbon dating like twigs and nest material but from the excreta or you know so if you see a peregrine nesting site there's this whitewash of all of the years of whitewash yeah below it and that would you know if there's not an overhang to protect the excreta from the elements that stuff wouldn't stick around Um, so
1: that's a way to find you know if you were looking for trying to find a peregrine scrape you could look for all the the whitewash below
0: yeah uh that's basically the way that I find uh owl pellets is just by looking for owl poop at the base of trees and if there's more than one owl poop at the base of oh ah. that was cool. Uh sorry cooper's <laughs> hawk just flew by my window. What? Uh, yeah, Probably speaking of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. 16,000-year-old like scrape, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I've been mostly talking about cliffs and their native habitat, but peregrines are increasingly found in urban environments and they will also nest in, on, you know, skyscrapers and on bridges and stuff like that. Uh, so they are definitely, you know, utilizing structures in urban environments, which you know, a city is essentially a model of a natural habitat for peregrine. So it kind of seems like one of these cliff edge, you know, skyscrapers, yeah, a cliff, cliff with a ledges, smooth edge. Yeah.
1: Delicious pigeons wandering around.
0: Delicious pigeons all over the place. Yeah. One of the the big hazards, though, if you're a peregrine and you're nesting on an urban site is if you are nesting in a cliff, often like the ones in Rock Point, if you're nesting on a cliff, what's right below you is water. Right. So if you're a little baby and you happen to jump out of the nest, uh, you are going to land in soft landing, nice, soft water. Right. And then you're right next to shore. And so you'd be able to just you know flop your way uh, along the water. But if you're nesting on a bridge. You might be in the middle of an incredibly wide, you know, half mile wide, one mile wide body of water that um, if you fall, sure. yeah, if you fall into, then you're toast, you're going to drown. Or if you're nesting on top of a skyscraper and you fall out of the skyscraper, then yeah, you're the, road, gonna, the
1: road's not very soft. Yeah, the road's not or very friendly. soft.
0: Um, I found this uh, this quote from this is the he was a famous ecologist in the early mid uh, 1900s Haldane. He's the guy who came up with the idea of primordial soup, and that's where we ah. all evolved from. Uh, and we, he we was eat talking... that by the way
1: every Thursday. Yeah, every
0: Thursday is primordial soup. Primordial soup or... day.
1: That's what we call it. Yeah. Nice.
0: <laughs> yeah. What goes in a primordial
1: soup? Pretty much the leftovers that are in the refrigerator. Oh yeah. <laughs> You try to get as many members, kingdoms, you know, animal, vegetable, fungus, bacteria.
0: Do you start making it the week before, so you leave out all the leftovers from the previous week, and then see whatever develops in your little primordial soup? Of course, soup that makes it more that. primordial. Yeah. yeah,
1: it makes it older.
0: It's basically just a rind of green fuzz.
1: Pro tip: <laughs> Where Penicillin came from.
0: Yeah. So, so I was, I was curious about, and this will start to get into the stoop, their hunting method. But I was curious about the terminal velocity of a peregrine falcon. So I was looking at terminal velocity, like if you drop an object from a really, you know, from yeah, it reaches a steady,
1: steady fall. You know, the air, the friction. The air resistance is the same as the gravitational pull, and it stabilizes.
0: Yeah, at a certain speed. Uh, And so this guy Haldane wrote that, To the mouse and any smaller animal, gravity presents practically no dangers. You can drop a mouse down a thousand-yard mine shaft, and on arriving at the bottom, it gets a slight shock and walks away. A rat is killed, a man is broken, a horse splashes. For the resistance presented to the movement by the air is proportional to the surface of the moving object. <laughs> yeah, so uh, splashing horses is a pretty horrific idea. But with peregrines, you know, with the a full-grown peregrine is two and a half, three pounds, and if you drop a fledgling that is not that big out of a nest, uh, it will hit the ground and not die, even if it's you know hitting a rock at the bottom of that. But if it hits water, that's even better. Um, but then, yeah, again, if you're on the uh, on a bridge, or if you're on a skyscraper and you fall and you hit asphalt, you might not die from the impact, but you are then falling onto potentially a road and there are cars. And so car accidents or car collisions uh, are a big problem for nesting falcons uh, in urban areas. So yeah, so it, monitoring sites that are cliff nesters versus urban nesters is like four or five times more su- or a higher success rate in the natural environments because they don't have huh. these urban hazards that they're they're dealing with
1: on the bright side if you're nesting on a, a ledge in a skyscraper you have a much higher percentage of getting a webcam i think attached to your nest <laughs> that, that and more twitter followers true. can help you survive yeah in fact <laughs> listeners should check out there's many cool i believe peregrine webcams of peregrine yeah definitely amazing chicks and they're awesome
0: yeah they're fun to watch Yeah, they're also, if you are, so one of the keys to the success, successful uh, reintroduction of peregrines into uh, most parts of North America has been having fledge watch which is, you know, a group of volunteers that will watch fledglings on a peregrine falcon nest. And it's not, you know, they don't have to do this year round. They just have to do it at that brief period of time between after they hatch and when they first fledge. And so the fledge watchers would either be like kayakers under a bridge that would just hang out. And if peregrines... And rescue them if they fall. yeah uh and so in pennsylvania there is i can't remember both of their names i think it was like duncan and splash were the names (laughs) of these
1: sounds like a horse's name by the way i'm never gonna name a horse splash after you yeah (laughs) yeah okay go ahead they kept jumping out
0: (laughs) they kept jumping out and they kept having to get rescued by these uh kayakers and brought back into the nest um yeah because they would jump into the middle of the river and then wouldn't be able to make it to shore on their own.
1: Or maybe it was like a game for them after a while. It's like, hey, let's go visit, the <laughs> yeah. let's go visit Uncle, Uncle Yellow Boat down there. Yeah. flash.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then it's the same thing with fledge watchers that are volunteering at uh, nest sites uh, that are above roads, where if the peregrine fledgling jumps out and then, yeah, falls to the wow. road. I'm going to the... start
1: listing that occasionally. What do you do? I'm a fledge watcher. It's yeah. It's got a ring to it.
0: Yeah. Uh, ah, yeah. maybe that should have been your fake job for the week.
1: Yep. Too late.
0: Yeah, too late. Next week. So I mentioned that mortality from drowning and from car collisions, but some of the other ways that peregrines can die are, uh, we mentioned, I'm not sure, I think in the animal adaptations to City Life, so episode two of this season, we mentioned pigeon fanciers. And one of the problems with pigeon fanciers is it's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from the falconers where falconers are raising peregrine falcons and largely feeding them pigeons Uh, and then (laughs) you have pigeon fanciers who are raising pigeons and don't want predators around and so peregrine falcons one it's not the highest cause of mortality for them but pigeon fanciers killing peregrines and so Ah. um actually uh, Center for Ecosystem Studies here in Vermont, they had released an article that was detailing the different causes of mortality of peregrines. And so finding birds that had been shot was uh, on the list, not the most common.
1: Maybe that's what was going on with Splash, that pigeon fanciers were like throwing them out of the nest. Yeah, yeah. The Fledge Watchers <laughs> had to rescue. like You know, like dressed up like cat burglars kind of.
0: Yeah. I uh, in that. the end
1: not very fanciers too fancy yeah, yeah. <laughs> they should have wow it's almost like there would be rumbles between the pigeon fanciers and the falconers the humans <laughs> yeah. duking it out natural enemies yeah as far as
0: i know there are no large battles between the two
1: <laughs> well i think i think our listeners would like to hear if they if we do come across one maybe yeah. see one on youtube
0: so other causes of mortality, they, you know, increasingly found in urban areas. In a, Like in Pennsylvania, 10 to 20% of the population exists in Philadelphia of peregrines. So they're found in cities and increasingly so. Often, you know, in or around cities where there are pigeons hanging out, there are airports and a lot of air traffic. And so... Uh. Not just automobile collisions being a source of mortality, but also collisions with airplanes can be problematic. And they mentioned in this study that Peregrine airplane collisions were the highest source of mortality, but they said that it was probably just over-reported because... You know they're the easiest to find the carcasses right. on of peregrines on uh, airport runways. What
1: about um, disease? Do they get you know? Is there more susceptible to disease in the urban? I don't know if the pigeons are carrying more diseases because they're all kind of grouped together in these cities.
0: Uh, trichomoniasis is one that is sort of common. This is a disease that it's carried in the throats of prey animals when they ingest a prey animal, then it gets into their throat and then can parasitize them. And that can be fatal to them. And so one of the things that happens with peregrine nest sites that are being monitored is uh, doing saliva swabs or throat swabs. And birds that have signs of trick will get antibiotic treatments and then they'll be all right. But yeah, that can be a source of mortality. that's one of the things I mean, we talked about with animal adaptations to cities is if you're living in higher densities in cities, then the spread of diseases is going to be a lot more rampant and dangerous for urban populations than for rural and wild populations. So trick rates are higher for peregrines in cities than they are for wild populations. Um, All right. So that, that's a good segue there for uh, talking about their diet. So yeah, you mentioned the
1: sweet, delicious pigeon.
0: Yeah. The sweet, delicious pigeon. So they, they mostly eat birds. They'll also eat bats. I haven't seen this with peregrines, but I watched this with their smaller cousins. The I've seen it with both Merlins and Kestrels where we had this, this flush of dragonflies. It was amazing. And they were for some reason, the, the the dragonflies were all hovering over this parking lot. And so I was with a bunch of the crows past staff and we were uh, staying at the end of the day uh, in this parking lot. We started noticing this. I think it was a kestrel this, for this time that I saw it. And it was flying into the dragonflies and they it would grab a dragonfly, hold it by its wings, eat its body and then drop the wings. And what? it did this for we probably watched for maybe thirty minutes or so, and so there were, and we started looking all over the parking lot, and there were dragonfly wings everywhere.
1: Oh my god! Would they flutter down their iridescent wings, fluttering?
0: Yeah. So we watched it catch probably a couple dozen or so wow. and do this behavior. It was so cool. Um, but with peregrines, they do a similar behavior. I mentioned the males will take food from the females on the wing. They can so they can eat while they're flying. Or sorry, the females will take food offerings from the males in flight and they'll do the same thing with like in Austin, Texas, you have these massive roosts of bats that'll fly out at night to go foraging and peregrines that live in Austin uh, will hunt these bats. And they'll do the same thing that the merlins and kestrels do, will do with the dragonflies. Well, they'll eat the bat and, in mid and
1: drop the wings. And Will they drop the wings? <laughs> I don't think it's they'll like do that. It's a little harder wings? to
0: rip off bat wings than it is <laughs> dragonflies.
1: I've seen them rip things. They're yeah. good rippers. So, do you know if peregrines can hunt? You know, at at night. I guess if there's city lights around, it's sort of like dusk type. Yeah, possibly.
0: Um, I'm not sure if they 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 probably would not be able to hunt at night. Their hunting pattern. So they they eat basically everything. I think it's like fifteen hundred to two thousand different species of birds around the world have been uh, observed either directly or indirectly being hunted by peregrines. So it's like almost ten percent of birds get predated, or more than ten percent of birds get predated upon by peregrines. So they are total generalists, but they are sort of specialists in how they hunt them and so you mentioned the stoop and so the stoop is this method of uh from high up so you know they nest on cliffs they spend a bunch of time perched on cliffs looking down for potential prey and then once they spot some prey then they might fly out or maybe they're already flying and they'll sort of circle around and lock on to where potential prey is and then they'll spiral down after them so if you are identifying your prey from far away then being in an urban environment at night, even if there are lights, those lights don't it's tricky. Yeah. They're not going to be helpful illuminating uh, pigeons as they're flying around or flying away from you. So I would assume that they're not hunting as much or even at all. So it's more common night.
1: outside of cities. What we might call the primordial stoop. That's where yeah. that happens.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the primordial st- the stoop only <laughs> happens in the day in their wild environment.
1: So, yeah, do you want to describe the, the stoop for us? This is, I mean, I, again, I don't know how much of this is accurate because some of it is what we were taught to tell the kids many years ago. <laughs> yeah. But there are videos of this on, on YouTube that are, I think, exciting to watch, especially for a father with a 10-year-old child. But um, if, this, so once I've seen that a lot of times the Falcons will go up fairly high and I don't know if they catch a thermal or just they spend a lot of energy getting up high and then they <clears throat> spot their prey and they start to go down and they fold their wings backwards in a very aerodynamic position and exceed some sort of ridiculous speed, like 250 miles an hour. And then they have all these adaptations that are keeping their head from exploding and their eyeballs from coming out. You know, they've got membranes (laughs) over their eyes, baffles in their noses and all kinds of things. All systems go. What we taught the kids were that they actually make a ball, like a fist with their talons and kind of try to strike the birds with that because otherwise it would like rip their toes off. But I think we were taught to sensationalize a little bit possible dangers of the stoop. And so I pictured it originally as like they hit the birds at full speed going 200 miles an hour. But the more of the videos I've seen, they sort of go down in the stoop and they get close to the bird and then they sort of adjust it and kind of like fly after them sometimes. And they're flying more horizontally by the time they catch the animal, but they sort of have the speed advantage because of their stoop. So I don't know if they more commonly hit hit the birds in full stoop. I've only seen it happen once. I did see one, actually. I take out a duck one time. We just saw a duck flying and then all of a sudden just like this blur came and the duck fell.
0: Oh, uh, so cool.
1: On a but so I, I'm, I don't know if that happens more often or if they kind of come out of their stoop and then horizontally more or less pursue their prey and catch them that way. But that's that's kind of my description. I'm sure I miss miss some of what actually happens.
0: So, yeah. So they like you mentioned, they do fly up high and then they're looking down for potential prey they have exceptional vision so they have a a, a, i mentioned they are diet generalists so they eat a ton of different types of birds but they are attack method specialists right and so this stoop is like the way that they hunt although i suppose maybe those peregrines were just drinking water but it seemed like they were they were actually hunting there but you know that's not their typical hunting reach in and grab
1: well i have seen them like just fly you know like 10 feet over the land out at a bunch of ducks from a tree. Yeah, I watched the very
0: stoop-like. The same thing with a bunch of sandpipers where yeah, it sort of came in and then flushed all these sandpipers and then locked in on one of them and then just Grabbed pursued it. it for quite a while until sandpiper got away. Yeah, I mean, their success rates, I think, are pretty widely variable. And so in p- some places, success rates are like as high as 90% of the time that they go oh, after something, Lord, they'll catch it. Amazing. And then in other places, less than 10%. So there's pretty big variability of their success rates based on their habitat. Um, but yeah, so they fly up, they have exceptional vision. So so they have, uh, we have, you know, our best vision would be 20 20 vision and then with peregrines they have 24 vision and so what we can see at four feet away they can see at 20 feet away so they can see you know really small objects from a far distance and so if they're flying a half mile up they can see the animals that are down below whether they're pigeons or sandpipers or ducks or whatever Uh, so then once they lock in on a prey then yeah they'll dive bomb down And there's this guy, his name is Ken Franklin, and he is a falconer and also an ecologist and a skydiver. So (laughs) So you dove with them? No way. He'll jump out of planes with his falcon frightful. And so he's been clocking what is the maximum speed that he can get a peregrine to uh, fly at. And so they have measured up to 242 miles an hour, which is incredible. But that probably never happens out in the mm-hmm. wild, and he, you know, if you're the higher up you go in the atmosphere, the less air there is, so the less right.
1: air resistance. So he's there taking is. his falcons up to like 25,000 feet and then skydiving th- with them. I
0: think I'm not sure the highest, but I think it's like 10,000 or so feet is what he's jumping out of. Uh, your terminal velocity is probably what is it for humans, like 100 and 150, somewhere around yeah. there. I wonder how um,
1: fast you go as a parachute, probably like. I don't know, five miles an hour. I don't know how fast. Yeah,
0: yeah, a lot of drag with the parachute. Um, So if you're flying that fast, you need to have adaptations to deal with it because one of the the problems is if you're going that fast and you had your mouth open, the amount of pressure that would be put on your lungs could burst your lungs. And you also need to, you know, when they're initially diving, they're not flapping their wings. But once they, they do punch potentially- I guess it's, there's a little debate about whether or not they actually a punch or <laughs> I guess technically it would be or kick because um, they're using their feet. Um, but yeah, in a bald fist, they're knocking into their prey. So if they miss their prey or if they hit it and then they have to recover it, then they're flying and they're using their wings, flapping them. But otherwise, they want their wings tucked totally into their body. So they have this sort of teardrop-shaped, silhouette when they're dropping out of the sky they have a nictitating membrane which is they actually don't really use it when they're in the the free fall because it kind of clouds their vision but this is a clear lens that or eyelid that goes over and when they close their eyes they have lacrimal glands um, but they also have a hardarian gland which is another gland that secretes this sort of viscous solution that moistens the cornea so it keeps the surface of the eye from drying out. And so when they blink this nictitating membrane, it clears out any debris that builds up while they're in the dive, but also uh, re-lubricates it with this yeah, sort of like almost mucusy substance. Yeah, so it keeps their eyes moist. They also have these tubercles in their beak Again, if their mouth was open or if their nostrils just had a straight shot into their windpipe, then that air pressure would yeah explode their lungs. So they have these tubercles that sort of break up the flow of the oxygen or of the air that's passing in there so they can still take in oxygen. I was just talking about how they're not flapping their wings, but once they start flapping their wings, then they're using energy and they would basically pass out if they were trying to fly at these high speeds after birds without without taking in oxygen so these little tubercles create these little forms of disturbance that allow air to enter into the lungs not at 242 miles an hour (laughs) Um, this is another nice little adaptation they have they also have two different foveas and so foveas are clusters of cells on the retina that are key for accurate vision, uh, sort of like uh, tunnel vision. That's like functional helpful tunnel vision. Right. Yeah. And so they have a nasal fovea, which is just uh, for the spotting prey from far away. Uh, and so this is, you know, when they're just sort of soaring around above and trying to lock in on prey. And these are kind of at a little bit of an angle. And so they, the, the other fovea, the temporal phobia, is functioning when they're looking straight at something. But with the nasal fovea, because it's slightly cocked off to the side, when they're in the stoop, they tend to spiral down and keep a slight angle to the predator that they're trying to, or the prey that they're okay. trying to lock onto so that this nasal fovea can, which is actively engaged, is the one that they're looking at, them, which is again more? at an angle. So they have to fly oh. at an angle towards that prey. And then once they get right up to it, then they're using the temporal fovea. Yeah. Oh.
1: Double phobia.
0: Double phobia. The nasal phobia doesn't give them stereoscopic vision, so they can't get a clear sense of depth perception. So if they were just using that to hunt, then it would be almost impossible to... Yeah.
1: But they get the angle. Get the angle set. Set the angle. Engage the nasal phobia. (laughs) Moving to temporal phobia. Sounds like a fighter pilot kind
0: of code. Yeah. So fighter pilots, there are things that they have in common so that the tubercle on the nose there are these intake ramps on jets or the little intake cones on the the jet engines that break up the air in the same way that the peregrine falcon nose wow. tubercles do and then also they have these things called malar bars which are you know peregrine falcons for their color they're often like a slaty gray and they have these dark gray heads and then they have these black bars that come down below their the eyes mustache
1: look a bit like a mustache
0: yeah, I think they kind of look like teardrops a little bit, but these oh, right. are these their eyes. Sorry. Yeah, mallar bars or mallar stripes. and they're sort of akin to the the eye makeup that baseball players and football players wear. Um, but also right in front of the cockpit, often on airplanes, there's black paint, just like right in front of the windows there. and often uh, it's not as shiny. Uh, so it doesn't reflect sunlight up into the cockpit where the pilots are sitting so these malar bars also act as this way of yeah reducing the amount of glare that's hitting the oh, eyes of these kestrels
1: birds. have those too right hanging down below their eyes
0: yeah kestrels have them i guess i thought of them
1: yeah they're not really mustaches at all they're coming down from the eyes yeah like tears of joy they're tears kind of, of prowess joy. Well, I think fighter pilots, I think fighter planes should imitate peregrines even more. I think they should be able to tuck their wings back and stoop, like we said feed each other. I think there should be baby fighter planes, there should be people watching them so they don't fall out of the hangar.
0: Yeah. Um so yeah, so once they collide with the bird of or that they're hunting, or the animal that they're hunting, uh they'll kick it punch it sometimes they will grab it in mid-flight i, I mentioned a huge array of birds at the hunt and because they are not necessarily um like jumping pouncing onto the bird but colliding with it they they don't have to be bigger than the prey that they're hunting and so they have you know you can watch there's a video that i watched uh in preparation for this of a peregrine attacking a pelican and they will defend their nests from birds that are much larger than them. So there are reports of them killing bald eagles. Uh, I watched a video of one hunting, or not hunting, but scaring a red-tailed hawk off of its nest. And so, yeah, they're pretty fearless, but they'll collide with these birds, typically hitting it with their their legs, and then they'll either grab it out of midair or on the ground, they'll pin it down. And then they have these tomial teeth their beaks are really sharp. They kind of look like parrot beaks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they have this little sharp, I don't, I always have trouble describing it, but it looks like a, a platform behind the beak and it's notched and it slices right up against the paired edge on the lower mandible. They use that for slicing, slicing. Through, yeah, the through the spinal cord and dispatching their prey. Oh,
1: that's, that's the normal dispatch method spinal cord bite yeah
0: so if it doesn't die on impact then they want to dispatch it as quickly as possible and so having this tomial tooth that yeah can slice through the spinal cord will allow them to kill their prey so that their prey isn't thrashing about while they uh pluck its feathers and then decapitate it and then slowly eat it (laughs) piece by piece this is
1: the kind of thing some kids loved it some kids were traumatized yeah yeah pretty brutal yeah
0: yeah so that brings us to our major fact which is their recovery and i guess we won't spend a ton of time talking about this but uh yeah peregrines were you know they're found all over the world so they didn't you know they weren't close to extinction but certainly here in North America they were essentially extinct uh, extinct from the wild in the 1940s DDT was discovered and yeah spread widely to combat uh, malaria typhoid it was a common insecticide there is yeah one of the the leading producers of of DDT was out in the coast of California and wreaked havoc on island populations of gold eagle golden eagles. Wow! Which are the second fastest bird? At uh, they can go up to two hundred miles an hour. I heard that.
1: That was my my son's actually it was his favorite bird. He yeah. kind of likes second place. He likes the you know he appreciates the silver medal. You know. Yeah. It's like silver, <laughs> yeah. second place. Can go for the first.
0: That's great yeah um, but yeah DDT makes its way into water and once it's in water it uh, you know gets ingested by plankton and then it gets infe- ingested by small fish and then larger fish and then works its way up the food chain and it gets ingested by these predatory birds and and it accumulates because in, in, peregrines can live up you know up 12, 14 years it accumulates year after year after year and it doesn't kill the bird but it thins their eggshells. And so because you have these birds that are trying to incubate their eggs and they're sitting on really thin sort of spongy eggs, the eggs will burst and they can't successfully rear young. And so all these predatory birds uh, were hammered. So all these populations of these predatory uh, species were reduced almost to nothing until DDT was banned in the 70s. Yeah, speaking of fighter jets, uh, apologies if you can hear that in the background. I have the the new F-35s, hooray, flying over.
1: Nice of them to show up though in this discussion.
0: Yeah, but yeah, so anyways, uh, so peregrines went basically extinct, and so it was a collaboration with conservation organizations, state organizations, and actually falconers to bring back the peregrine falcon. So peregrine falcons were in captivity. And for peregrines that were in captivity, they weren't being fed wild food that had DDT accumulated inside the bodies uh, of, the, uh, of the wild prey. And so these animals were healthy. They were able to produce eggs that were had nice thick shells that could be incubated just fine by the adults. And so there was a breeding stock of peregrine falcons that could be used for successful reintroductions. And did
1: they have trouble, like, hunting, learning to hunt without, you know, being raised by their parents in the wild, essentially? Well, with with falconers,
0: falconers are, you know, still training their animals to hunt. I mean, in the (laughs) medieval times, falconers, they're, (laughs) you know, not hunting wild prey. But some falconers are using dogs where they'll have dogs flush prey. Out of an area, and then the falcons will fly after the prey and hunt. So they're still hunting I wild see, so getting prey to a certain extent. Yeah, but they it's called hacking, uh, where you try and raise a predatory bird or a bird while not having it interact and imprint on humans. And so some of these eggs that were taken from breeding stock from uh, falconers are raised in boxes and then they use hand puppets where puppets, okay. people would wear hand puppets of peregrine falcons and then feed them that way. And they would raise them on cliff edges so that they're still looking out over their natural environment. <laughs> and uh, so everything I just
1: like picture that. this like person in a costume sort of, or I don't know, like again, cat burglar with a hand puppet, like perched on this cliff. Yeah, and it exactly. feels like there must have been That's lots what of it was. human be... fatalities just falling. <laughs> yeah. Peeling off the cliff with their little hand puppet going, no. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they had parachutes. Yeah. I wonder if they dressed their, it, entirely like their body as a giant peregrine falcon just in case.
0: Just you know, in case. Although that might him. be a little bit terrifying because then the. the <laughs> for everyone. Fledglings, yeah. yeah,
1: for everyone. But the peregrine
0: uh, nestlings would imprint on, you on know, six giant. foot tall peregrines. And you'd
1: have to keep the costume on. But, yeah, it's good for halloween though yeah yeah so uh,
0: there was a wave of early introductions so DDT again was banned in early 1970s like 1972 or so and there was a wave of reintroductions through the 80s and they were really unsuccessful and so barred owls or not barred owls but great horned owls which are both predators of peregrine falcons but also will sort of compete for nest sites Uh, Not all the time, but uh, have overlap. And there's sort of this stasis between the great horned owls and the peregrine falcons pre DDT, where they could kind of coexist together. They hunt very different food resources, but there are enough peregrine falcons to replace parts of their population that were lost to predation by great horned owls. Yeah, so the stasis was disrupted with DDT where peregrine populations crashed. So once they were reintroduced into the wild, there were few enough of them in the wild that whenever they got eaten by a great horned owl, it was a significant enough dent in their population that it never allowed the peregrine falcons to increase to uh, like a critical mass. And yeah, great horned owls are mostly eating like woodland birds or not woodland birds, but like woodland mammals? mammals. Yeah. And so their diet didn't have as much DDT in it. And so they, yeah, they just were not affected by... Yeah, DDT. They can be. There was one study that I read where they were basically force feeding uh, DDT-laden D- stuff to <laughs> owls. Just, and they right. found that it had the same effects where within their eggshells. So it wasn't that they're not affected by it. It was just, they just that... They weren't getting as much DDT. Yeah. So uh, they switched, uh, they started building nest platforms that were out in like these salt marshes and reintroducing peregrines into different habitats uh, where there were fewer great horned owls and then also urban introductions of peregrine falcons where there just aren't as many owls great horned owls can't deal with urban conditions and so there just weren't as many great horned owls so they were successfully able to uh, increase their populations and cities are now these source populations of peregrines and then some of the surrounding areas where there might be more is it
1: i mean is it possible that that practice um acclimatized the peregrines to city environment you know hunting more and so they would teach their offspring that and it Contributed to peregrines colonizing the cities even more than they would have otherwise, or <clears throat> would um, they have just done that? They would have been in the cities anyway. Yeah, they the probably would have been came. in in
0: cities anyways. I, I yeah, I, I don't think climi- climatizing an individual to human presence would necessarily make it. I guess my question more is more: successful. Do they
1: to what degree do the parents teach the hunting techniques to their fledglings, and if they're and are the hunting techniques any different in a city than in the wilderness and maybe they're just so similar no they're
0: the they're the same i mean it's like it's not a learned behavior
1: it's a instinctive
0: yeah yeah because there are fewer great horned owls in these urban areas uh the highest densities of peregrine falcons in the world are now found in cities because they've had such success colonizing urban areas they i mean it's not just because they can live in urban areas that they have been delisted. They were on the endangered species list and then they've been delisted. Uh, There have been like millions and millions of dollars and countless hours of volunteers like the Fledge Watch volunteers um, and, uh, you know, the different governmental agencies and conservation agencies that have been hacking birds and reintroducing them into the wild. So it's not just cities uh, just on their own allowed for peregrines to to thrive once again. Um, But the cities have been a critical part of the success of peregrine falcons. The major fact here, I guess, is that cities can mirror, on some level, natural environments. And so species that have evolved to the natural environments at mirror cities can easily make the jump to thriving in urban areas. And in this case with the peregrines, it's having these cliff-like structures. So buildings, uh, and then also having their food source readily available, which is pigeons, which are found in every single city, uh, around the globe. Yeah. So that is our peregrine falcon.
1: Yeah. You know, I, uh, one more very brief story. I, uh, Peregrines were a tiny part of my life. Earlier in my life, I had I had kind of a breakup with a girlfriend. And for some reason, this like rhyme came into my head afterwards, which was, if I think it was, if two peregrines had a pair of grins, would I care again about you? It like, came into my head. <laughs> and uh, just for a day or two. Yeah. But and all now, the I'm peregrines say, have yes, are those be, tears. Yes, they have tears. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder sometimes about animals that are, their mouths are sort of fixed in what we see as grins. You know, they do get better publicity bottlenose yeah. dolphins yeah <laughs> they look happy they must be cute they must be they must be nice they're doing
0: yeah no smiling for the peregrines
1: though just tears yeah Tear- but they could be tears of joy could be but they're not well, i'm gonna go get myself some elephant seal milk i don't know about you but... <laughs> that sounds great <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah yeah we just gotta go get in the the line
1: maybe some cereal yeah <laughs> well thank you teague as always for your air edition
0: yeah we'll see you next time
1: I'll All see right. you next week. All
0: right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Ah, uh, But to spend a day soaring high above this city, cutting across the turbulent winds and lording over the pigeons, such is the life for the regal peregrine falcon. Alas, we must now turn from the Aries atop Gotham steel spires to the humble blunderings of the ridiculous Virginia opossum as it ambles through piles and piles of garbage. Until then, we'd greatly appreciate you dropping a five-star review for us. It helps us get out the word on iTunes and other podcast apps. After that, head on over to crosspathorg podcast and get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board, where you can ask questions, suggest topics, and even post fake ads that we'll read on the air. You'll also find archived episodes, online natural history programs, and lots of other natural history content. All right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on The Single Acorn.